Golay presents Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. 100% Irish and direct to your door. Greetings, recorded historians, and welcome to Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. I'm your host, Ed Smith, and if you're new to the whole deal, each week I have an interesting chat with an interesting person about their interesting lives, all through three interesting album choices. It's all very well. What's the word I'm looking for? Mm, yes, interesting. And none more so than this week's recorded history buff, remarkably talented and supremely lovely, Connor O'Brien, who many of us heard first through the band the immediate after their short but glorious reign as one of the best bands of their generation. Connor struck out on his own, and it's fair to say it's worked out quite well for him, yes. With as behind, well, you know, whichever way you want to put it, villagers, he has released four studio albums, one live record, a string of accolades under his belt too, including two Ivor Novello Awards, the most recent being 2016's album award for Darling Arithmetic, two Mercury Prize nominations, and is also a previous winner of Ireland's Choice Music Prize. Now, I've got to meet and hang out with Connor a wee bit over the years through some mutual pals, and I think each time I've walked away thinking, like, this man is one of the most respected and beloved singer-songwriters this country has produced in years, no doubt, no argument. And he's still such a very sweet, thoughtful, funny, and sensitive soul. How he manages that talent and to be so approachable, so warm, and so lovely is beyond me. He wears it well, as my father would say. Now, this was recorded a while back, but his album choices are absolutely timeless, so that does help. So here it is, the recorded history of the great Connor O'Brien. Connor O'Brien, welcome to Recorded History. How's it going, Ed? How are you? I'm, you know, I'm good. How what are intro. you? How are Thank you? you. Last time I saw you was at the Stony Batter Festival. Yes. And you did an impromptu set as part of the festival in that little area across the way from Walsh's. And it was the talk of the town. I had to, I had to follow <laughs> you because I was DJing afterwards and I scrambled down with my bag and I said, oh God, yeah, I'm a bit late. Who was on? And I went, oh, Connor O'Brien just played. I was like, perfect. <laughs> uh, I might go now. But does that happen a lot? Do you get asked when friends of yours get married or they're having events or dues, would they go, Connor, would you? Uh... Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And quite often with people I don't know as well. And I've definitely sent quite a lot of videos to things. That oh, I, um, my God. Of course, and then got yeah. sent back videos of people watching the videos as they're getting meta. married and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's all very, it's lovely. It's really nice. Um, so, yeah, I've done a bunch of them. But that Stony Better Festival was it was wild. It was lovely. It wasn't yeah. it nice? Yeah, it was a lovely vibe. It was nice vibes. May Kay held it all together yeah. beautifully, as she always does. Congratulations on Fever Dreams. Yeah. I, I dropped into Imro today to pick up my lovely, shiny, independent Check. one album. <laughs> no checks, no, no checks. checks no. I was checking in on them. and uh, So you got your disc? Yeah, I got my disc. And, what do you uh, do with those kind of things? you keep them? you put them up? I think a few of them are in my mum's house and, uh, and my dad's house. Yeah. But I think my mum polishes them. Right. She's very proud. She's in the Connor room. Uh, what's your relationship with the album now? Does it change as time goes on? You know, I suppose, I'm assuming maybe that there was a certain amount of nerves releasing it into the world. But now that it's out and it would obviously rightly met with such huge success and acclaim, is your relationship different with the album now? Or Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it was, I think the album was very much a, a result of everything that happened. And I just wanted a big blast of kind of exuberant energy and yeah. that's kind of what what it was but it, 
you know, being a villager's record, it sort of turned into slightly weird, exuberant, dreamy energy. Um, but just getting to play it live, finally, like the, the Ivy Garden show was was one of my high points ever live-wise. Was that your first show in, in some time? or? Yeah, well, we, we, we had to cancel the Vicar Street shows because of, of the, the vid. Mm. Um, so this was just like we were, we were just dying to play it, you yeah, know, and yeah. we hadn't really given Fever Dreams to to Ireland yet properly on a live setting. So Does it only really fully was, come to realisation once you have performed it live that it yeah. comes to life a bit more? I mean, it changes a lot. So you, I mean, inevitably you just go, damn, I wish we should have recorded that, you know, four months later after playing 20 shows, you know, or whatever. But that's the way music is, you know. Do you look back on all your albums? Like five and 11 years, Connor, is, is a lot. It's quite prolific. It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, do you no, no Fontaines now. An album a year. It's crazy, isn't it? I, geez, I, they're going to have to slow I down. Love, I love it. Yeah, I love their their work. Ethic. I wondered if, in their case, the pandemic, they had a lot of time on their hands to record yeah. new stuff. But five albums in in eleven years is, it, by any standard, it's fairly prodigious output. Is that a conscious thing on your part, or is that you have so many ideas and so many directions you want to go that once you're finished one, how long do you wait before you start thinking and planning the next? Well, one? it's never really. There's always a backlog of stuff to go through. So at the moment, I'm working through some songs that I started like 15 years ago, oh kind God. of things. <laughs> so it's just it's a way, it's kind of filing, which sounds extremely boring. But it's for me the best writing happens when you're really organised and you are you organised everything in its right folder naturally. As Sometimes, a, <laughs> so you have all your files from. I've got all my files and I've got like them, you know, put into their years and everything. And, and oh I, my God! Um, but that's kind of what it is. It's just. It's kind of just, you know, there are moments which you can't explain, but I feel like a lot of it is just making sure you're at the desk as much as possible, you know, and working all the time. But I'm really enjoying it right now because I finally hit onto something. I've been working for months and months without getting anything in the last few days. I'm, oh, God, exciting. I'm on something. So, oh, right. I can yeah. sense the, it's good. the vibrations are coming off you. Very good. <laughs> what was your house growing up? Was it a musical house? Was there lots of records lying around? What were your very earliest influences when you were yeah, a child? Not, not many records. More, I think by the time I came around, it was kind of CDs were appearing and yeah. cassettes. And there was lots of kind of Louis Armstrong uh, and Ella Fitzgerald, or Louis Armstrong, which was his real name. Or Ella Fitzgerald or uh, Nina Simone and lots of kind of Sinatra, lots of okay. Sinatra. and The Great American Songbook. Yeah, and, yeah, that kind of stuff. I mean, I do remember a Christy Moore live album as well. I think I every dad in Ireland was <laughs> legally obliged to have the Eagles or a Christy Moore album. Yes, yeah. we didn't have any Eagles, so oh, we got the Christy, okay. I had to which I'm that. very happy about. And were any of these an influence on you, do you think, to this day? Or is it, you know, that melting pot of when you're so young? I remember Christy's rhythm being really influential when I was very young. But just before I picked up the guitar, I was fascinated by how tight his rhythm was when he was playing acoustic. So when I finally got my hands on a guitar, I was trying to play that really badly. That was a big thing. And I remember his Pink Floyd cover because I was already into Pink Floyd and I was like, wow, this is like traversing, you know, boundaries and this. Yeah, all that kind of stuff was. But it was only later I went back into kind of Planksty and all that stuff. Right. And but, how old uh, were you when you picked up the guitar then for the first time? I'd say I was probably 11. Wow. Or 12 maybe, about 12. Yeah. So your teenage years were spent learning the guitar and then I suppose, deepening your appreciation and knowledge of music, which brings us rather tidily, if I say so myself, to your first choice, your first entry into your recorded history. It's 1999. You were 15 or 16 around this mm. time. So, Connor, what is your very first entry for recorded history today? 
Um, well, my first entry for Record History is uh, an album called Gorilla by Super Free Animals. Yes. It's actually not my favourite Super Free Animals album. I actually, I think I prefer Radiator and, and even some Fuzzy Logic stuff. And first two albums. Yeah, yeah. And actually a lot of the stuff after that as well. But I was, I came into them Rings Around the World. Yeah, I love Rings Around the World as well. But, but the thing about this album is that it just ties me, it brings me right back. I listened to it again recently when I was like preparing for this show and I was like, wow, every song just reminds me of like working in Dunleary Ferry Terminal is that uh, where are we working? So, <laughs> yeah. who is Connor then? When he's listening to this, you're 16. Who's Connor O'Brien? Where is he? Uh, I'm in Dunleary Ferry Terminal, oh, wow. serving extremely badly made coffees and being left alone at the cooker for some reason and not getting food out to anybody and being shouted at. And okay, <laughs> so a, a glorious time. In your Don't life. hire me as a waiter. So the album brings you right back. Yeah, to, to I mean, time. Super Furries were a huge band for a lot for me and a lot of the people I grew up with. Around the Dunleary area, actually, but a lot of them were all into. Most of my friends around that area were much more into like going to raves and techno, and I wasn't really into that yet. Yeah, I was still very much a guitar guy, and I was like, "What are they doing? You know, I don't understand this at all." But the Super Furries was the one band they agreed on because it's just there's something about their attitude. And I think they do have a rave history as well. Yeah, I think. yeah. There's a lot of that electronic that kind of threads through their music. I think Gruff Rhys is one of the most un, unappreciated geniuses of his day. He's incredible. Like all of their albums, that they have such a, a string of masterpieces, actually. Mm. Um, just brilliant, psychedelic, pop, rock. I, I don't know what to call them, but yeah, so many great memories. And Gorilla was, I suppose, their kind of reach. It was the first album they produced themselves. Right. Yeah, yeah, because it was the first one actually they didn't record in Wales. So I think they were out of their comfort zone. Their normal producer was just too tired, a chap called Gorwell Owen. And he'd done all their stuff before. I think they did the first two albums. And then when they approached him, he was like, I, I can't, I just can't face it. Yeah. <laughs> so Gruff took it on himself. Yeah, and he took it very seriously. Like he gave up drinking and he bought a book famously on Taekwondo in a nearby city in Bath. It's a very eclectic album. It's it's unpredictable. You don't know which direction it's going to go. Was that something that appealed to you? Uh, yeah, very much so. I'd, I'd seen them. Um, I was sort of aware of them before with around their first album, but I wasn't, I didn't really dig it. And then I saw them opening for the Manic Street Preachers in, wow. the, in the Point, probably about a, a year or two before they released Gorilla. And I just was like, this is my new favourite band. I was right at the front and just, you know. They do inspire um, a lot of devotion. I think they're one of those bands yeah. that once you get into them, it's full head over heels. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of little pockets you can dive into if you give everything a headphone listen. And there's a lot of attention to detail for, for the nerds. But then there's also this incredible pop sensibility, which makes them just write these bangers, you know. these. Yeah, Northern Lights is a great song on the album. And listening to it again, no, I hadn't listened to this again. This is one of the great things about this podcast. That when people come on, they give me the, the reason to revisit albums. And I, I haven't listened to this in 15 years, probably. Mm. It is glorious. It's, well, it's, it's really good fun, you know, but there's some there's serious sides to it. He's a lot of commentary on, you know, wherever you leave your phone is your home, but it's unpredictable. It's great fun. He called it himself a jukebox of an album. Anna McGee has gone on to say this is one of the last great records on Creation Records, on mm. the label. Was their attitude and approach to songwriting and, I suppose, formatting an album? Was that an early influence on you when it came to, like, say, the immediate? Definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they they kept breaking the barriers in terms of how they meshed electronics and, and acoustic. And, and, and they're also, I mean, they, they were, as you're saying there, they sort of had a political edge. And, and some of their lyrics, you, you could find reference points and read about certain people or whatever. But they never lost their sense of humor, which no. was a big thing about that. Because I think a lot of political music can sometimes, you know, maybe perhaps start lecturing to you a bit a bit much. So, I, I, Mannix. 
Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Oi, Who said that? Edit that out. Edit yeah, that yeah, out. No, no, no. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. I should. No manic bashing. <laughs> but I, I think they do, as a result, maybe they're a little condescended to sometimes super furries that they're not taken as seriously as the serious band they really are. Yeah. Well, and that's a great shame. But to go back to the immediate then, the, the formation of that band, mid-2000s, you burned quick, but you burned bright. You know, what are your memories of that time with the band. It must have been a crazy couple of years. Yeah, it was. I mean, my main positive memories are just hanging out with my best friends, which were I was fr- best friends with since we were about 12 again. And uh, and we just shared music and poetry and books. And, and then we started traveling with our little band and stuff. And it was... It was amazing that we had some some of the best shows ever and the only the kind of shows that you could play when you're that age, you know, just kind of completely off the hinge shows where everything was just about to go wrong all the yeah. time and uh, so symbols good. were falling everywhere. And I know. saw you in Whelan's one night and I'd never, I think I'd heard a lot about the, the band and I went to see you and it's to this day, it's one of my top five gigs of all time. And I'd never seen the swapping of the, like Peter would stand up and then he'd take over and then mm. he'd get in behind the drums and then David would take... That's just something that happened organically in the studio and we're going to keep this going from rehearsals. It really added such a lovely frisson and energy and a sense of exuberance to the gigs that yeah, great. you're obviously really talented. That helps us. <laughs> but just such joy. Yeah, it was, it, that's, that's kind of, it was the kind of band that once there was any sense of duty or obligation, the magic kind of disappeared. It yeah. was, it's just, there was no way of faking what we were doing kind of thing. So once we were kind of on the stage at the, at the Media Awards, miming to our track, we were looking at each other going, why did we do this again? Oh, you no. know, It was just sort of like, this isn't really what this is about. This yeah. is about those shows in Whelan's and this is about those real sparks and stuff. And this music isn't really made to be put into a different kind of box, you know. And as somebody else who uh, is very hard to put into a box, and this is when I saw your list that you sent me, uh, sorry for sliding into your DMs, but I wanted to get ahead of myself and you sent me on the three albums we're going to be discussing today. We've gone through Gorilla, onto the next one. When I saw who you suggested for your second album, I, I gasped a little bit, I suppose, in almost fear. This is an artist that I've willfully, and uh, I hold my hands up, avoided over the years because I was scared. So I just didn't think I had the brains or the musical knowledge to appreciate who he is. So your second choice for your recorded history is... It is Glassworks by Philip Glass. Yeah. Um, this is like this album, like I almost well up when I think about some of the tracks on it. And I, I think your fear is misplaced in terms of like worried if you're going to be, in terms of being worried if you're going to be intelligent enough or whatever with <laughs> this music because... I find his music to just be so sensuous and just so based on um, and feeling. And I think it actually breaks away from a lot of music where you have to use your brain a little bit more. And this album especially, I remember I started seeing this this guy about, two, when was it? about 2005 or so. Yeah. And we ended up together for like six years or something. But like the first summer we met, he introduced, he just put this album on in his room. And we listened to it all that summer, like just over and over and over again. It was that and The Great Destroyer by Lowe. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, all right. But we just kept repeating this album in particular over and over again. And it just brings me back to that sort of first flush of absolute joy. And, and there was something deeply profound about this music because I'd only really heard his solo piano stuff before. Mm. I'd never heard him mix like synthesizers. It was mixed, with... was it? Is this true? For The Walkman that it was commissioned by CBS. This is back in 1982. It's 40 years old. Uh, it's remarkable, really, because it sounds like it could have been yeah. written and recorded yesterday. But I think this is 
the manner in which they, they were commissioned by CBS and it was purposely mixed with a view for it to be played on tape. So the Walkman was it was eighty two. So obviously the Walkman was firmly establishing itself. I thought you meant the band, the Walkman. Oh, right. I was like, it was mixed for the Walkman. Oh, there's there's a collaboration. I'm not sure. I'd hold my breath. No, for the actual Sony Walkman. Or so, I think this. You know, when you sent it to me yesterday, and I've, I've listened to it three times, I was blown away by how, first of all, how accessible it was. Opening track is one of the most beautiful pieces of music, and again, quite cinematic. Of course, he's very well known and Academy Award nominated for his film soundtracks, but. It's only six, six, do you call them movements now? You'll have to help me here, but they're... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Pieces? Pieces, <laughs> yeah. Six bits of music, one after the other. And then, you know, it takes you on a little journey. You know, it is quite cinematic. And I suppose when you're speaking there about when you met that chap in the first flush of, of New Love, if it would have provided a lovely soundtrack, I would imagine. Yeah. All the emotions it, that go with it, because it, it takes you in I, different places. What I like about it most, actually, is even though it's it's so brilliantly made and brilliantly mixed and performed. I like the way there's these weird little moments where like, this actually happens quite often on a lot of the tracks where one of the instruments keeps hanging on like a major third or whatever, but the chord underneath goes to a minor and he just lets the instrument keep hanging and it's and it's just weird and wrong, but he, he does it three or four times throughout the album and you're like, okay, he's he's doing this. He's making me get into the music more because yeah. I'm thinking more about the music now, but it's it's having the opposite effect of thinking it's really just bringing me into the music in a sense-based way, you know, um, which is very cool. I think. And also I, I read an interesting quote from you as we're speaking about technology and so the genius of Philip Glass that you said something along the lines of actually word for word. I feel the internet age is changing the way we're thinking quite profoundly. Our concentration spans, the way we connect, the way we consume art, it's had an impact on us all. Uh, yeah, I tweeted that, I think. Did you tweet that? <laughs> oh my God, here's no, me making, tweeting was, about uh, I was making a joke, a little, burger a buns. Ironic joke there. Oh, yeah. sorry. I, see, there you go. This is why I'm not fit for, I'm not good enough for <laughs> Philip Glass or Connor O'Brien. So where are you at with technology and music? You know, obviously you were, you know, started recording, I suppose, and releasing music at the very cusp of Spotify and access to music being more widespread, more so-called democratic, but has there been, a, for want of a better word, a worsening or a, a negative impact that you find that technology has had on people's engagement with music? With music, I think it's I think it's complicated. I personally move back to the few vinyls that I still have, and I try as often as I can to put them on because I think you listen to music differently if you have if you think you're going to sit down and listen to it from start to finish. Whereas I think this kind of track based thing is maybe a result of algorithms and all that stuff you know whereas maybe i'm just a traditionalist when it comes to albums you know but i also think there's something nice about like not only making albums but listening to the albums because it's quite noticeable especially in the next artist which i will choose soon yeah whereby there's there's a thread that you can really create throughout a body of work yeah. you know which you just can't really do in three minutes and i think maybe a little bit of that's being lost in the internet kind of age because people can i suppose cherry pick track 1711 and the story that the artist is supposed to try to tell from 1 to 14 yeah is was destroyed isn't it because yeah listen to my bad songs as yeah well. yeah you're gonna have to wade through this to get to the good one to get to the hit now that brings us very smoothly thank you sir for helping along there to your third choice your third and final choice for recorded history today again testament to how varied and eclectic your taste is and your influences we've gone from the super furry animals to philip glass and we're ending up 2015. Who are we with now? 
I've gone for um, To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. I don't say it lightly when I say it's a masterpiece, you know. Um, I'm still sort of getting stuff from it in terms of little sonic treats, headphone treats and stuff. But also I was, I was listening to it again yesterday for this show. And now I have 15 tabs open on my uh, laptop of Wikipedia entries of, you know. Yeah, I listened to it twice various, since um, yesterday and I haven't listened to it again in about two, three years. And every single time there's something I've missed previously, it's obviously a sign of a true master at work, but there's so much going on here. Yeah. Thematically, musically, uh, it's a concept album in a suppose in a loose possible sense. I mean, I wanted to speak to you about, it was one of the things that you're quite, uh, I was going to say open as if it's something to admit to, but you've, you've spoken quite recently about you're getting quite a deep into jazz the last couple of years. And I suppose Kendrick's involvement with some of the great jazz musicians of contemporary times, including the likes of Thundercat, the funk side with George Clinton. Is, he sings on this record. Yeah, the yeah, opening yeah. track. Yeah. There's so many people on this that I'm wondering, and I suppose there is a quite a heavy jazz influence on Fever Dreams. Was that something that in around 2015, were you influenced by Kendrick's involvement of jazz? I mean, I had, in 2015, when it came out, I think it came out around the time of the marriage referendum in Ireland. Yeah. So there was, it was a crazy time anyway. And we, I was playing lots of shows around that time. Um, and then about a month after it came out, we started touring a lot, in, especially in the West Coast of, of the US. And we were like playing with Weller and, uh, and Calexico and just playing lots of shows. But the one album we just kept playing on the long drives around the States was this record, Pimp Butterfly. And everyone, everyone in the van agreed to play it over and over and over again because of just how amazing it was, you know. I was just, yeah, I was, I mean, that was the time when we were playing tracks from Darling Arithmetic, which is about as far away from this, <laughs> this album as you could get because it's, it's so... Well, is well, it's it, sonically speaking. Sonically speaking, know, I understand. Um, but I know that, you know, we, we just touched on, you know, we, we could be here for another five hours discussing some of the, the issues that Kendrick is addressing here, institutional racism, black history, his recent visit to Africa and Mandela's prison cell, which inspired a lot of this. His championing of a new form of the original American art form of jazz, black art form as well, and the melding of the hip hop, all of that. But his political stuff, I suppose, you know, he's very much renowned and respected for that. But you dealt with a lot of issues around the homophobia, I think, in and around this time with Darling Arithmetic. Mm. That was his album. Did that push you towards maybe speaking more openly about that kind of thing? Well, no, because this album, I think, well, this came out pretty much around the time I started touring okay, that album. Right. But the next record, um, maybe sonically, I was definitely reaching for something a little bit more abstract and a little bit more beat driven. There's so much, you're like, it is a political record, but also like... What I love about really great artists, you know, like Kendrick or, I don't know, Dylan or like people who are just obviously working on another plane when they're writing words is that he manages to kind of completely weave his own bizarre life and situation and all the power dynamics and that into the history of the country that he's Starship, from and yeah. the place that he's from and yeah. Compton. And, and it's so him, it's so personal, but it's also... I mean, it's a cliche to say, but it's also extremely universal. And it, and it also just, there's some amazing beats. and It <laughs> slaps, man. You know, it, it absolutely slaps. And I think, you know, we could talk about, we could push our glasses up our nose and stroke our chins about <laughs> some of the theories and the political messages and all the rest. But 
Plus, it's a very raw and honest album where he speaks quite openly about his own hypocrisy when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement and speaking out the side of his mouth about black issues and maybe not talking the talk but not walking the walk. Survivor's guilt. Yeah, that's it. And then you've got a track like All Right where amidst all the noise and the anger and the rage, there's a lot of hope as well, you know. So it's an absolute washing machine of an album. You go in, you tumble to you around which way and that, you know. So I think it's a remarkable choice and I want to thank you first of all for reintroducing me to it. Before we finish up, I want to thank you so much again for joining me today for Recorded History. Thanks for having me. What is the plan next? What are you up to? Not right now, I mean. Um, I've, I'm writing like a madman, writing all the time, and it's it's getting really good, I think. <laughs> I'm high on it right now. And What's your, uh, Oh, God, forgive me for saying this, but what is your process? Do you have a little routine? Um, do you have to be seated at a certain desk, or do you have kind of any superstitions? Y- not really. I it's I just do it wherever I can, but it's just it's these days it's about time management and it's just like okay, I can do it on Tuesday for five hours and so I just lock the door for five hours and do it, you know, and then I have to do lots of other things for three more days. It's really just spending every moment that you have free, you know, away from the rest of your life <laughs> to do it. And I had a couple of months there of just really digging lots of holes and not really getting anywhere and now it's uh, and now a lot of the ideas that I thought I'd thrown away are all starting to light up to me and okay. make lots of sense so it's really cool Do you listen to loads of other music while you're trying to write oh, your own? Oh yes Yeah 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 And that would be a, like, would you be feeding yourself certain nutrients from other genres just mm. to kind of that's the direction you're going Can we ask Yeah What do you stuff. What do you listen to at the moment? Um, what am I listening to at the moment? Well because I was listening to Kendrick yesterday I downloaded a bunch of Funkadelic in okay. Parliament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm back on that buzz and the meters and kind of funky stuff. But I'm still, I'm right, reading a book at the moment, a big long biography about Duke Ellington. So I'm still, um, I'm slowly getting through it because every single page is another Wikipedia search kind of thing. And I'm just listening to every song that they mention chronologically, much like this oh show God. in his life. Um, what is it about Duke Ellington that you find so inspiring? Or? Well, I, I'm still learning so much about him and I had the pleasure of talking to a real jazzer about him recently and I realised how little I really understand. But he's just an interesting entity in terms of like where he was placed in history and how he kind of managed to keep alive the the spirit of the the black spirituals and all that kind of culture behind him, but also weave in more like, I guess, European-centric classical music chord ideas and and just that kind of discipline that he had. Although... The book tells me that he woke up at about 3 p.m. every day and I was just pushed before. on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he'd work till But he'd be up till 6, 7, 8 in the morning. Yeah, and I just love the sound of the results of this discipline and, and the musicians that he yeah. that he hired, you know. They were also idiosyncratic and strange musicians that couldn't quite play perfectly and he used them very interestingly. And it's just an interesting If character. you were to recommend some, what would be a good introduction to Duke Ellington? Well, there's a lovely track called... Uh, Prelude to a kiss, okay, which is very romantic and and a lovely and um, lovely and soft. And there's a there's a great album of his called Masterpieces from 1950, which is obviously quite. He was already in the game for quite a long time, but he reworks a lot of his favorites in an extremely interesting, weird way. Okay, it gets strange and dark. And that's my evening sorted. Yeah, Connor, thank you so much again for coming in and sharing three of your remarkable choices for recorded history. I have to put you in a kind of an awkward and tough spot now. The Sophie's Choice of the three, you can only pick one. Which one would that be and why? Of the three albums? Yeah, I know. Oh, I wow. know. This It's absolutely arbitrary. Well, I this. mean, I, I'm instantly going to Kendrick, to be honest. Okay. Um, I thought you were going to go Philip Glass. I was going to go Philip Glass, but 
Kendrick is like this album. I don't know. There's just something that I, I feel like it's one of those records that when you hear them, they they had already or always existed. Do you know what I mean? Like that, it just yeah. it, it just took a person to finally, yeah, to finally release it or something. And and it just it's um it's kind of a perfect record for me. So it is. There's no absolutely no doubt about it. So for anyone listening to Pimp a Butterfly, the choice of the three from the great Con O'Brien. This is a little awkward. I've got Philip Glass outside. I was <gasps> going to get him in, but. Uh, Philip, you can, that's, that's okay. Can someone get Kendrick on the phone? Anyway, Conor O'Brien, Villagers, thank you so much for joining us here on Recorded History and hopefully see you around the Stony Batter Festival or invite soon. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. So there we have it, the recorded history of the great and wonderful Conor O'Brien. He sent me down a Philip Glass rabbit hole since, I have to tell you, I'm not sure I'll ever be the same again. A very special talent and a very special man to go with that talent. Let me tell you that. And thanks again to him for dropping by. Now, I hope you enjoyed our trip through Connor's record collection and you'll join me next week and every Sunday after that for Recorded History. And also, if you want to check out any of Connor's choices or indeed anything at all that might tickle your eardrums, I would absolutely love it if you did so by way of our simply sensational sponsors at therecordhub.com. All the Villagers albums are there. They are great, but I particularly loved the last one, Fever Dreams, and it's worth getting alone just for the artwork on the vinyl. It is stunning. Shout out to the brilliant Spilt Milk Designs for that. So definitely check it out on therecordhub.com. We couldn't do this podcast without them. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History. Now hit the old subscribe button, become a weekly listener, but above all that, subscribe to yourself. Yes, you're all an outstanding collection of atoms. It's true. Good luck. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D-Ready. Our series is proudly supported by TheRecordHub.com, your local Irish and online record store.